friends, Genesis chapter 1. We're about to start a series over the next six months on the chapters of Genesis 1 through 4. So as we kind of walk through, it'll be apparent why we chose 1 through 4 and not 1 through 2 or 1 through 3, but 1 through 4, and because we have so much time on such few chapters, we're really going to settle in and we're going to drink deeply of the opening chapters of our Bibles. Think about Genesis 1 through 4, you think about the first couple of pages of the Bible, and this is foundational to the Bible, it's foundational to the story of redemption, it's foundational for our lives and what we experience today. It's full of splendor, it's full of controversy, it's full of tricky but tremendous truths. You can't talk about Genesis 1 through 4 without talking about creation and humanity and gender and sexuality and sin and God's presence in all of these things. And so this is a deep work we're about to do. I feel about Genesis what I feel about the book of Romans, and that is I'm not old enough to preach on it yet. I don't know my Bible well enough and I'm not ready for it. But then it occurred to me, you know what? I could just go ahead and preach through it now And then we all get a little bit older and we'll just preach through it again. So let's just have a first go at it and and learn a few things because the book is written for a child to understand and it's written in a way that has stumped scholars. And maybe I'm spending too much time with the scholars that have been stumped and I need to get around kids a little bit more, but these are precious truths for us. Now, this series is going to be exegetical and theological. Those are your two fancy words for the day, exegetical and theological. And and what we mean by those two words is an exegetical sermon is asking the questions that the original author was asking and answering in the text. And a theological sermon is picking up a theme in the text and asking the questions that the whole of the Bible is asking. So sometimes we'll zero in, what does this word mean? What is the context? What is Moses saying to the people of Israel as they're leaving uh, slavery in Egypt? And why is he saying those things? That's exegetical work. And sometimes like today, we're gonna take a big step back and say, well, what does the whole Bible have to say about the truth that's being presented in Genesis? So today is one of those theological sermons. And if you turn in your Bible to page one, Genesis chapter 1, I'm going to read from verse 1. In the beginning. Let's pray together. Lord, this is holy ground. This is ground where we weren't there and we don't have access to it. And unless you stoop really low and speak in really plain language for us to understand... We have no access to your glory here. So would you reveal yourself to us this morning in a childlike way for us to understand? We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I wonder if any of you uh, have kids in your life, your own kids, nieces, nephews, who are in the why stage. I mean, they want to know why this, why that, clean your room, why, do what I said, why, why, what, how, that's, that's a sweet stage. That can be a tricky stage in our kids. That can be disobedience, um, but it can also just be a curiosity about the world. And I think some of those why questions and how questions and what questions are good for us as students of our Bibles 
When I open the scriptures, I hope each morning or each evening, and I look into them, I hope I bring questions with me. Why is it saying what it's saying? What is it speaking about in this particular passage? When I read the words in the beginning, I can't help but want to flip back in my Bible to know, well, what happened before the beginning? That's page one, but what happens in the prologue? What's going on? Who's there? What's being done? What happens before the beginning? Well, one long dead theologian, we can't agree on which one it was that said this, was one at, once asked that question, what was God up to before the beginning? And he answered, he was out in the woods cutting a switch for people that ask dumb questions like that. Like, don't ask that question. So I think we come to that question honestly. I think Genesis 1 begs for a peek behind the, the curtain of creation. And there's actually a handful of verses in our Bibles that speak directly to what was happening before creation. And I think it actually teaches something teaches us something about God, about who he is and what he's like. So I think it's important work for us to do here this morning. We're going to do a survey of the Bible and we're going to find every verse that mentions what's happening before Genesis 1.1. Now, before we do that, we need to make just two brief comments. Number one, technically, we can't speak about before the beginning. So we understand that when God creates and when God declares in the beginning that time itself is part of creation. When God says in the beginning, he's actually creating time and he's starting the timeline from that moment to go forward. And then in the first chapter, we get the course of a week. And so our world is being framed around time and we are bound to that time, but we must understand God is not. So there's no such thing as going thousands and thousands and thousands of years back to the beginning of creation and then from Genesis 1 saying, well, what was God doing 10 minutes before that and 100 years before that and millennia before that because time is something that we use and God is not bound by and you can't actually talk about before the beginning. The problem for us and this sermon today is that the Christian philosophers who truly grasp the timelessness of God are really annoying to listen to. They just say really dense stuff that we don't get. I mean, here's Boethius who gives us the classic definition of God's timelessness and he says eternity then is the complete, simultaneous, and perfect possession of everlasting life. Or another author, because of the ontological difference between the creator and creation, creation, like any other act of God, relates to his pure act. His verbness is what he says, okay? Do you all want me to talk like that for the next 20 minutes? I don't think so. So can we agree that I can use phrases like before the beginning and outside of time, and we all understand God is not bound by that? And if a philosophy undergrad runs up to me after the service and says, you can't talk about before the beginning, then I'll tell you, then Boethius should be your pastor, okay? Because he won't do stuff like that. So there's no such thing as before the beginning, but we're talking about before the foundations of the world. 
That's one comment. The second one is, I was like super strict when I went through my Bible. There's a lot that the Bible says happens at creation. What is going on at the time of creation? And I ruled those passages out. I wanna see what the Bible says about before creation and what was happening before anything was made. So our scripture reading today, John 1, 1, a beautiful verse, in the beginning was the word, that's fantastic. That's not part of today's sermon because that happens at the beginning. Or think about when God goes defcon on Job in Job 38. And he says to him, where were you when I formed the world and laid its foundations? An incredible passage. But again, it's talking about the beginning. And I want to know what happens before the beginning. So our question today, what happened before the beginning? And I count 13 places in my Bible that speak to the time before time began. And if you read the Bible, you might come up with a different count depending on what you say is in and what you say is out. But the full testimony of Scripture from Old Testament to New Testament agrees on two categories of truths. Before the beginning, God exists. And before the beginning, God plans our redemption. God exists and God plans our redemption. So if you're taking notes today, truth number one is God exists outside of time. And there's three things I want to say about that from those 13 passages. So God exists outside of time. God exists. And this is such a crucial truth about God. It's woven into his divine name. Anytime you see that word Lord fully capitalized in your Bible, you know it refers to the name, the personal divine name Yahweh, which God introduces to the people of Israel in Exodus 3.14. He calls himself Yahweh when he introduces himself to Moses and the people of Israel and says, I am who I am. Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent you. I, I am. I am presently for all time perfectly in myself. I am Yahweh. Now Jesus knows that's a reference to time because Jesus picks up on that in John chapter 8. So he's speaking to a crowd and um, they're very confused and Jesus is telling them, Abraham was happy to see my day. Jesus' day. He was happy to see me. And the crowd says, well, wait a minute. You're not even 50 years old. How can Abraham, who lived thousands of years before you, be excited about your day? And Jesus responds in John chapter 8, because before Abraham was born, I am. I am. And the crowds tried to kill him. Psalm 90 verse 2 agrees, before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth or the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. That's why the Bible ends where it begins in Revelation 1.8, our call to worship. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come. So God exists, but number two, God exists alone apart from other gods. Now this kind of startled me the first time I heard it because I just, nobody told me this in Sunday school, 
the, the church doesn't have a monopoly on origin stories. So we have this story about how the world began and how it was created and it's super ancient, but I didn't know other people also had ancient stories about how the world began. You're going to be exposed to that. We might talk about that uh, later in the series, but it wasn't just the Hebrews who were telling where we came from. It was other cultures telling where we came from, and they also have creation narratives. They also have a formless deep. They also have where humanity came from. They also have origin stories, but those other accounts are full of conflict between gods, gods fighting with each other. The Greeks, the Hittites, the Babylonians, they tell origin stories of gods that existed before creation. They were fighting with one another, and in some cases, they would slay a god and build creation out of the body parts of the conquered god. So there are other origin stories, but would you agree that Genesis 1 reads completely differently? This is God alone in perfect strength and peace. There's no conflict in Genesis chapter one. God is creating at will, opposed by none, alone and complete in himself. That's what God says through the prophet Isaiah in 43.10. Know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, nor shall there be after me. So God exists God exists alone from apart from other gods and God exists in Trinity. Now we're gonna get back to this later in the series because the Bible has a lot to say about Father, Son, and Spirit being present at creation. But here are a few verses that talk about Jesus, the Son, existing before creation. Proverbs chapter eight teases us because it talks about wisdom and wisdom personified is is the foreshadowing of Christ. And Proverbs 8 says, wisdom was there with God before he made anything. But then far more explicitly in 1 Peter chapter 1, it says that Christ was with God before the foundation of the world. And then we know that Jesus prays in the upper room in John 17, 5, right before his crucifixion, he says, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. So Jesus is saying, I was with you in glory before we made anything. I gave up that glory to come to earth and be crucified. I wanna get back to the glory I had with you before the world existed. Not only did we exist together, not only did we exist in perfect fellowship, but we had all glory supremely in ourselves We're not waiting for a a worship service on a Sunday morning to get something we don't already have. We have had it before we made anything. God's perfect glory in Trinity. All this to say that when we read this staggering opening line in our Bible, in the beginning, it's referring to our beginning, not God's beginning. It's referring to the creation of the cosmos, not the creation of Christ. From everlasting to everlasting, the triune God, apart from any other God, dwells in perfection before he makes the world. And long after this version of the world is gone, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. God exists. 
He exists perfectly in himself. That's the first truth. The whole Bible agrees on it. God is there before anything is made. We might get that. We might understand that. We might have guessed that. But maybe it's the second truth that will be more surprising for us because truth number two is God plans our redemption outside of time. So God exists outside of time, but number two, God plans our redemption outside of time. And there's going to be four subpoints here. But when you first read the book of Genesis, God can look like he is completely caught off guard by sin, right? Because you almost feel bad for him. God creates the world, and then he creates the Garden of Eden, and then he creates humanity, and and he gives them everything they possibly need, and he plans to walk with them in perfect fellowship in the cool of the day, and, and it looks like God is ready to do those daily walks every day from here till kingdom come, until that faithful day that Adam and Eve don't show up for the walk, and God can look like he's caught flat-footed, and God can look like He has to spend the rest of the Bible reacting and improvising for how he's going to still claim a people for himself. It's like he started with the Eden idea. Hey, let's just live here forever in the Garden of Eden. But then that didn't work out. So he's like, well, let's try this Noah idea. And that didn't work out. So it's like, well, let's try this Abraham idea and let's create the people of Israel. But that doesn't fly. And so he says, let's try Jesus in the church and and let's keep trying until we can keep a people who will hear worship us forever. And it can look like he's improvising, but I hope to do everything in my power to banish that thought from our minds. Our salvation was in the mind and heart and plan of God before he laid the first brick of creation. It existed outside of time. So number one, redemption was always in God's mind. Now, I get that from 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 7. It says, when we preach, we're not talking about the wisdom of this age, the little w wisdom. There's a lot of little wisdoms happening today in the church. We don't peddle in that, but rather, quote, we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed, before the ages for our glory. That wisdom, Proverbs 8, was already with God, in God, for us, before creation. So it was always in God's mind. But number two, God's redemption was always meant to be shared. God's redemption was always meant to be shared. You know when you're in the checkout line of the grocery store, and you see the peanut M&Ms, and you grab the big bag, and it says share size, and you chuckle to yourself, because that's going home with you alone. (laughs) Well, that's the gospel. The gospel comes in a share size. It was always God's plan, according to Titus chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, that this is a, a glory meant to be shared, When it says that eternal life was promised before the ages began, but now it's manifested through the preaching of the church. 
The Great Commission is not a new idea. It's not a response to anything before God made anything. Titus 1 says he had it in his mind to raise up the people of Israel and the church, the new Israel, so that we would faithfully preach this gospel. So it's always meant to be shared. Number three, God's redemption is already decided by election. God's redemption is already decided by election. Here's here's one of the great mysteries of the Bible. Wherever you turn page after page, it is a universal offer of salvation. There's not a single person who is disqualified because of who they are, what they are, where they came from, what they've done. Not a single person. This this gospel will spread through the church to the ends of the earth, every tribe and people group, every person, every gender. It will go forth and it will be applicable to all. Any person can repent and believe and trust in Jesus. But in reality... We don't choose God, he chooses us. I've heard it described in this way, that when we get to heaven and we pass through the pearly gate, we will see on the front of the gate that precious verse, Matthew 11, 38, that says, come to me all who are weary. Jesus said that and Jesus meant that. There is not a single weary person who can't now run to Jesus and find his salvation. We pass through that gate and say, we are weary and we have come. But then you turn around and look at the backside of that gate And on it is Ephesians 1, 4. He chose us before the foundation of the world. And in love, he predestined us. It's God who did that. I came, I came running. I want to take credit for that. But it is God who has prepared that for me. Revelation 13.8 and Revelation 17.8 say the same thing in the opposite way. It says that there are people who oppose God. They reject God. They resist him. They hate him. They want nothing to do with him. And as that rebellion goes forth, we hear this in those two passages. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life. If I reject God's free offer of salvation, if I say I don't want that, that's not for me, I'm my own man, I'm my own person, I will do what I will do, and I stand before that judgment of God, he has a book of life that was written before the foundations of the world, and Revelation says, my name's not in it. And God knew that. It is God's plan from before the foundation. Number four, God's redemption has already been accomplished. God's redemption has already been accomplished. Now, we're time-bound, so there was a time in each of our lives, and may still be. There are people in this room who are born again. They're trusting in Christ. There are people here who are just here to explore and, and understand what it means to trust in Christ. There's a time in all of our lives where we were not a believer, where we were not born again, We were under God's wrath. We did not have the promise of eternal life. We didn't have the seal of the Holy Spirit. We were not in Christ. That's true of us as time-bound creatures. But this is mind-bending. That's actually not true for God 
who stands outside of time and accomplishes our salvation outside of time. Listen to the way 2 Timothy 1, 8 through 10 speaks about it when he says, the Lord saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. He did it and he gave it before he made anything. It was ours in Christ. So I think back to myself as a high school student who didn't trust in Jesus, who wanted nothing to do with God, rejecting, rebelling against him. And in that moment, in my time-bound state, I stood under the perfect, righteous wrath of God and I was destined for eternal punishment. But to God who was outside of time, I was also simultaneously the one for which he had written in the book of life before the foundation of the world and the benefits of Christ were already mine in his sovereign plan. That's why Romans 8.30 can refer to the whole chain of salvation. Everything that had happened to us, is happening to us, will happen to us. It can talk about that whole thing in the past tense as if it has already happened. Romans 8.30, those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. So our future glorification, nobody in this room has experienced that yet. When we are ushered into the perfect presence of God to worship him forever, in God's economy outside of time, It's as if that has already happened. Our salvation is that secure that God can speak about it in the past tense. That's his plan. So God exists outside of time. God accomplishes our salvation outside of time. Friend, when we crack open the book of Genesis, we are standing on holy ground. None of us were there. None of us would know anything about this, about creation itself. Were God not to condescend and speak in plain language? And if that's true of creation, how much so is that true of before creation? There was never a time when God did not create or did not redeem. There is never a time when God did not create or did not redeem. We're going to talk about creation, and I want you to imagine that as a little time-bound bubble in the hands of our creator. All the universe, all of its time, all of its history, all of its future, that is in God's hands, and the everlasting triune God stands outside of that, creating, redeeming, sustaining for the glory of his name. Let's pray together. Lord, holy, 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 majestic, powerful, righteous, creative, redeeming, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-sufficient are you. I pray that as we wade into the deep waters of Genesis and time before time, 
we would feel ourselves growing very small and we would see you in our estimation growing very large and we will worship you afresh for the grandeur of who you are. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.